For these few weeks of Advent, we're staying in the writings of Luke, and uh, we're looking at the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to remember that as we look at, at the Gospel of Luke, that Luke was a, a great historian. And so as he shares these accounts, he does his best to relay them accurately. And, and we also know the Holy Spirit guides him in his writing. And so as we jump into our passage for the day, I, I want you to see uh, the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He writes these words, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to you. And so when Luke wrote this gospel, sometime around AD 60 or or before that, Luke knew that uh, many had already written histories about the life of Jesus. Of course, there was Matthew and, and Mark, And most believe that the Gospel of John was written sometime later. But Luke could also be referring to other biographies about Jesus' life that were not directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. And and all of these writings uh, and all that they contained were things that were commonly known to uh, the Christians in Luke's day. These were stories that were certainly passed down by the original disciples. But it's important to see here that Luke says that all of these prior accounts were based on the words of eyewitnesses. Verse three, it seems good to me also having followed all of these things closely. In other words, he says, I've been paying attention for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He's writing to this man, Theophilus, and he says this, that you may have certainty containing the things that you've been taught. And so Luke puts himself here in the, in the same line as Matthew and Mark because his account is based on research, it's based on an understanding of the actual events in Jesus' life. And so having already read probably Matthew and Mark's accounts, Luke says, I want to give you a third account, and I, and I want to give a very comprehensive order to it. That's why when you look at Luke's gospel, it is the most comprehensive gospel, okay? It looks at Jesus' life all the way from the announcement of John the Baptist until the day that Jesus ascends into heaven. And Luke's gospel is very special because it's really the most universal gospel. I want you to see a couple things that are unique here. I think we have a slide for that. A couple things, write these down, that are unique about Luke's gospel. It's the most universal gospel because the Gentiles are often put in a very favorable light. Are you thankful for that? Luke is interested in the roles of women and children and those that were typically outcast in that society. Luke is also the one that's most interested in prayer. He has seven different references to Jesus praying that are found only in his gospel alone. And here's the other thing you need to know. Luke's gospel is the one with the greatest emphasis on the Holy Spirit and on joy. And that's why we often find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke during the Advent season. And so we're looking together at the songs of Christmas in the Gospel of Luke. Last week my wife shared on Mary's story. Mary's song is known as the Magnificat. And Zechariah's song that we're going to look at today is known as the Benedictus, Latin for blessing. And our passage today is is pretty cool because it weaves through Mary's story as we talk about Zechariah's song. There are a lot of good Christmas songs you can listen to but I think these are the best. Now, some of you might not think of these as songs, but I can assure you today they're full of this rich understanding of the incarnation and the coming of Jesus Christ. Luke 1, verse 5 tells us this, in the days of Herod, king of Judah. Now, let me stop right there. I know I didn't get very far, but I want you to see these words, and I want you to understand that these uh, events happened at a definite time in history. 
Historically, we know there was a man named Herod the Great, and at this point, he's coming to the end of a long and, and terrible reign. And so in this specific time in history, here's what happened. There was a priest named Zechariah of a, the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So not only did these events happen in a definite time, but they happened to a definite people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and here's their lineage so you can know they're real people. They happened also in a definite place. This didn't take place in Narnia or Middle Earth, right? We have information in the scriptures about the time, the location, and the people involved. And look at what Luke tells us about them. Verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So we're told they're, they're both righteous, they both walk blamelessly before God, but their lives are stigmatized by something. It is this barrenness. It was understood in that time and culture that children are a blessing from the Lord. And so when a woman could not have children, there was this stigma that went along with it. Very different from the world we live in today where sometimes there's a, a stigma for women for having too many children, right? That's what some think. But God's desire from the beginning, understand this, his very first command to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth. Understand today, if man and women, if we are created in the image of God, then as we fill the earth, we fill the earth with the image of God. But how many of you know the enemy does not like that one bit? And so his plan is always to attack life. He did it through Pharaoh. He did it through King Herod. And sadly, he still does it through political leaders of our day. This is why our culture today, especially the culture in this nation, is a culture of death. Over 60 million image bearers of God have been killed in the womb in the United States alone. Think about that for a moment. Verse 8, now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Zechariah is this priest, and he comes from the lineage of Abijah. The order of Abijah is listed with the priest and the Levites who returned with Zerubbabel and with Joshua. And only priests from a certain lineage could serve in the temple. And of course, over the years, even those particular lineages, the, the number of priests multiplied. It's believed that in the time of Jesus, there were as many as 20,000 priests, so 20,000 priests, how do you decide who goes in and burns the incense, right? How do you decide from week to week who serves in the temple? Well, again, there were certain lineage that could only carry out certain tasks, and then they would cast lots. And on this one occasion, the lot fell on Zechariah. And so here's a godly man, one of the biggest opportunities of his lifetimes before him, to serve in the holy place and to, to burn the incense, right? I think he probably wondered for years what it would be like to go into the holy place and how God might meet him there and what God might speak to him. And no doubt this, this event is filled with great anticipation for Zechariah. And so he goes in to burn the incense according to the law of Moses on the golden altar. And as he does this, the Israelite men, the men would gather. Remember we talked about the temple a few weeks ago, right? They would gather on the outside in, in the court of Israel. It was where the men would gather. 
Now two other priests would go in with him, but as soon as he would light the incense, they would step outside so that the people would know, okay, now is the time to pray. And really, think about it. It's this amazing picture, right? Hundreds of men gathered outside, kneeling, praying before God. Their hands are lifted, and as they pray, this incense goes up before God. So there is literal incense going up as the prayers of God's people, which are are incense before God, are going up. You see, they understood that. Their, their prayers are incense before God. Do you understand that today? God delights in your prayers. And so this time of prayer, it was likely followed by a time of silence throughout the temple. Zechariah would have just lingered there in the holy place for the first time and maybe the only time in his whole life. Now, if you had the opportunity to be alone with God in the holy place, in the very presence of God. If you had the opportunity to pray in the presence of God, I think you'd take some time to consider what you're gonna pray ahead of time. Maybe you'd write down a list, you'd at least have it memorized. Here's, here's what I'm gonna talk to him about, right? And one of the things that Zechariah would have undoubtedly prayed for would be his people. He would have prayed for the nation of Israel because at that time they are oppressed by the Romans. He would have certainly prayed for a a political relief, right? He would have prayed, God, would you send that promised Messiah? I don't think personally that he would have taken much time to pray for his own personal needs. He probably thought, no, those are are not big enough, right? I'm going to pray for the nation of Israel. But look at what happens. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I don't know if he has his eyes shut in prayer, but if he did, can you imagine this? He opens his eyes, and there's an angel standing right in front of him on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, why would fear fall on him? Well, truth is, angels didn't look like what we think they look like, okay? This was not a naked little baby with wings, This was a majestic, awesome creature standing before him, right? That's why the first thing angels usually said was, do not be afraid, right? Because when you look at their majesty, there's a sense of fear and awe. And I wonder if he thought in that moment, oh my gosh, the the other priests are not going to believe this. Just wait till I tell them. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So the angel tells him, your prayers have been heard. Your prayer has been heard. But here's the thing. I don't think he was praying at that moment for a son. You see, Zechariah and his wife, again, they're advanced in years, which is a nice way of saying they were old, okay? And I'm sure they prayed many times in the past for a child, but that particular prayer is something they probably stopped praying a long time ago. Now think about that. Because sometimes we pray a long, long time for something, right? Have you ever prayed for something for so long that you just stop asking, right? Maybe you think, oh, that's God, God's will, or that season has passed me by. You're, maybe you're praying for a calling or a ministry. Maybe it is for a child. Maybe it is for that special someone that God would bring into your life. Whatever the prayer is, we know that after years, we can just give up praying, right? Because we're discouraged. And I'm sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed for many years that God would send them a son. But that was a long time ago. And they stopped believing God for that. That ship has sailed. That season has passed. And can I just say, there are times in our lives where it may seem like the dream is dead. And and we get this sense. We we, we start to doubt the love of God and, and the care of God for us. But understand, God always loves. And he never stops caring. And we gotta trust his season. We gotta trust his timing. You see, Zechariah finally gets this moment in the holy place, in the very presence of God. An angel meets him and lets him know, 
that his prayers, those prayers he prayed many years ago, those prayers that he and, and, and Elizabeth thought were ignored, he thought were forgotten, the angel lets him know those prayers have been heard by God. I wonder if he's confused at this moment. I wonder if he's saying, my prayers, that, that prayer for a child, like that was a long time ago, God. You're too late on that one, right? I'm not praying for that anymore. Instead, I'm praying that God would send the promised Messiah. But understand both of those prayers, the one from years ago and the one he's praying right at that moment are being answered simultaneously because God's gonna use this miracle child to prepare the way for the Messiah. Zechariah has two great desires in his heart and they're being answered together because it was part of God's plan that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have a boy that was born of a miraculous birth. It wouldn't be quite as miraculous as the conception of Jesus, the immaculate conception, right? But it was going to be a miracle. And this child is given a name even before he's conceived. Listen, I know a lot of parents that can't come up with a name even when the child's born. They're trying to figure it out, right? But they have the name even before he's conceived. And listen to what the angel says about him. Look at verse 14. He says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at this. Even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel says, it's not just you and Elizabeth that are going to rejoice when this child is born. Many are going to rejoice at his birth because he's going to be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. This is a reference to a vow we've talked about a few times, right? The, the Nazarite vow, right? And, and what the angel is saying is, man, this boy is going to be set apart. He's going to be consecrated. He, he's going to be used by the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. In that time, the filling of the Holy Spirit was not an extended thing. It was always for a specific time and a specific purpose. And young John would get that filling even in the womb. Listen, for all the debate over when life begins, I think you can look at that passage and see very clearly there is life in the womb. <laughs> there is life in the womb because this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. Don't try to tell me for a moment the Holy Spirit came on a clump of cells, okay? I don't think so. The Holy Spirit came upon the child John, while he was still in the womb, that's why he would leap in Elizabeth's womb, right, when Mary visits. Talk about a sense of purpose over John's life, right? Some of us, man, we, we're still trying to find God's purpose. This kid knows it while he's in the womb, right, before he's born, right? And, and look at what it says John will do. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. John's purpose is simple. It's to prepare the way for the Messiah. And how will he do this? It'll be by turning hearts to God. He preaches a message. He comes preaching a message of repentance before the Messiah comes. He was to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And that's a quotation from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And these were essentially the last words that were spoken in the Old Testament. And so get this. God's revelation in the person of Jesus is picking up right where he left off. He's gonna turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He's gonna make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John is gonna preach this message of repentance in order to prepare people for Messiah's coming. 
And, and his, his message is simple. His plan is simple. I want to show people their sin. I want to let them know that forgiveness is available. And then I want to point them to the one who forgives. You know, that's as simple as the gospel message is. Show people their sin. Let them know forgiveness is available. And then point them to the one who can forgive. But, but what is Zechariah's response to this news? Look at verse 18. Zechariah turns to this majestic being, this great angel, and he says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And so he hears the message and his attitude is, well, I hear your promise. Uh, you have to understand the condition of my wife. She's old, right? I'm old too, right? And, and this is a big promise and, and I really need you to give me a sign to prove it. Hear me, it's not that Zechariah doesn't want to believe. I mean, what an amazing promise. He, he would love to believe it. It just seems too good to be true. And in order to keep himself from disappointment, he's not going to get his hopes up. And, and can I just say, sometimes we rob ourselves of the joy of the miraculous because we come to God with that same attitude and we say, yeah, God, that would be great, but I don't want to be disappointed. Yet I want to encourage you, church, as we come into a new year, if your hope is in Christ, it's good to get your hopes up. It's good to get your hopes up. It's good to lean into the promises of God over your life. It's good to trust him for the miraculous. See, see the problem for Zechariah is that his focus is off. He, he looks at his circumstances first, and then he looks at the promise. And, and when we look at our circumstances first, we can be tempted to think, man, is this even logical, given my current situation? However, if you believe that God is real, then we know there's nothing logical about putting our circumstances before the promises of God. We need to put the promises of God in front of our circumstances, amen? For some of you, it's time to get your hopes up again and to lean into the promises that God has given you for your life, amen? And, and so Zechariah asks for a sign, but the angel doesn't give him one. Instead, he says, Zechariah, let me remind you of who I am and where I come from, right? He says, I'm Gabriel, okay? I stand in, in the presence of God and I was sent to you to bring this good news. Zechariah says, I'm an old man. Gabriel says, well, I'll tell you what. I stand in the presence of God, and God himself sent me to bring you this news, right? You tell me, Zechariah, which one holds more weight? Your age or who I am, right, and where I've been and what God's brought me to tell you, right? The angel brings good news. And it's not only that he's going to have a son, but that the son would play a significant role in God's plan of redeeming his people. Look at verse 20. And behold... Zechariah, you're going to be silent. You're going to be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, last week, when my wife talked about Mary and the message that came from the angel, right, she shared how Mary was, was humbled by the message, but she believed it. Here, Zechariah did not believe, okay? It, it, he, it's unbelief, and he pays the price for his unbelief. At the same time, I want you to see this, that his unbelief did not make God take away his promise or take the promise back, right? God's still faithful to accomplish his purpose, but the unbelief of Zechariah keeps him from enjoying it, keeps him from sharing it. Think about this. You have the greatest news ever, and you can't say anything about it. How, what a punishment is that, right? It, it's the same in our lives. When we don't believe God's promises, it doesn't mean we necessarily destroy the promise, I thank God that in his mercy, he's still faithful to his promises, but so often 
our belief destroys our ability to be joyful over the promises, right? To celebrate the promises, to rejoice as those things are actually being accomplished. And so this is the, mo- again, this is the most important moment in Zechariah's life. He meets an angel, he's given a promise, he has great truth to tell, but the punishment is he's not able to tell it. And sadly, many Christians would not consider this a punishment because many believers today have good news to tell and they don't mind keeping quiet about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their mouths might as well be shut by an angel. Oh, I pray that's not the case for you and I. Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So it was customary that the incense priest, as as soon as he was finished, he would come out of the holy place through the great doors of the temple and he would meet the other two priests right outside the door. And then this incense priest, he would raise his hands and he would sing the Carrie Job song. You know it, right? From Numbers chapter six. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Some of you are like, wow, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's in the Bible. And it was at this point that all the, the hundreds of worshipers that were gathered outside the temple, they knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly how to respond. They would raise their hands and they would say, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And after that, the worship leader would get on stage, all the musicians, the trumpets, the cymbals, the, the choir would join in. They would all sing the song of the day. And so get it, this is what they're all waiting for. They're waiting for the doors to open. They're waiting for Zechariah to come out of the doors of the temple. Scripture says they were wondering at his delay. Now, what were they wondering? They were wondering if he was okay. (laughs) Because there was always the chance that when you came into the presence of God, came in there and and you had your own deal, right? Your own sin, right? You could be struck down by God because of the sin in your own life. And for that reason, it was customary for the priest to come right out of the temple as soon as he's finished praying and say, okay, guys, I'm okay, I'm here, I'm still here, right? But with all that's going on with the angel and this interaction with Zechariah, he's delayed in coming out. And the people begin to wonder and the crowd's getting nervous. But finally he comes out. And remember, he's supposed to stand on the temple steps and the track is cued on the blessing, right? They're ready to go. But look what happens, verse 22. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Again, he's supposed to speak the blessing. He's just seen an angel. He's got all of these things to say but he can't speak, and so he does his best through charade, you know, first word, right? <laughs> to kind of relay what's going on. And not only is it hard to understand what he's saying, it's hard to believe when you do understand what he's saying, right? Verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, it says this, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Surprise, right? And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the day when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Just to be very clear, this was not an immaculate conception, this was not a virgin birth, which means without getting into the details, Zechariah partnered with God to fulfill the promise. Are you with me today? Okay. (laughs) He doesn't just hear the promise and believe God for some miraculous conception. And and we're told here that Elizabeth conceived and, and for five months she kept herself hidden. 
I don't think she was trying to hide this pregnancy. Again, this was going to be something to rejoice about. This was going to be, going to be something that would remove her reproach. But I, I think in that time, she spent time alone with the Lord during those first five months meditating, just thinking on the destiny of this child that God had given to her in old age. And I'm sure she thanked God that her reproach had been removed, that that stigma was now gone. Jumping ahead to verse 57, we're told this. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. In other words, the the promise was fulfilled just as God said it would be, because our God is a promise-keeping God. Now, remember, it was prophesied that many would rejoice at his birth. It was customary in that time that when a woman was about to give birth, friends would gather around the home and the musicians would come as well. And when the birth was announced, if it was a boy, the musicians would break into song and everybody would be rejoicing. If it was a girl, the musicians would just kind of sneak away quietly. That's just how it worked, all right? Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. They rejoiced. There's nothing surprising about the rejoicing, right? When, when, when women have a child, friends, relatives come, and they rejoice. There's nothing surprising about that. Of course, in Elizabeth's case, she's advanced in, in years, and so there's greater reason for rejoicing. They, they didn't think this family was ever going to have a child, and now God has given them a son. But did you notice the way Luke describes this? Don't miss this. He doesn't just say her neighbors and relatives heard that she had a child and they rejoiced with her. What does it say? Her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her. You see the difference? It's not just that she had a child. It's not just, oh, a matter of luck or chance. They understand fully. This is the Lord's doing. The root of their joy was in the recognition that this was God's provision. God had done this thing. This didn't just happen, right, by chance, right? God had done this thing, and he was in the midst of it. Oh, yes, I understand she was, again, advanced in years, and that would be all the more reason for them to recognize God's hand. But you understand that we always need to see God's hand in whatever has been provided for us because there has never been anything given to us that has not come from the hand of our Heavenly Father, amen, who's a good giver. James reminds us every good gift comes from the Father of lights. And this is a reminder, I think, to all of us of the kind of joy that we ought to share together as believers in the Lord, right? Whether it's at the birth of a child or, or whatever circumstances of life, that joy ought to be rooted in an awareness that God is a God who provides. God is a God who provides. And, and so the, that, that would be a good place for an amen. God is a God who provides. And so they describe it this way. They say, they heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Oh, that you would experience that kind of joy this Christmas. Because the Christmas story is all about God's great mercy to you and to I. Look at verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they, would, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Okay, so the eighth day, this is the day of circumcision. That means the boy who will eventually be called John is eight days old now. And they're going to name him at the time of his circumcision. Now, the Old Testament law did not require that you name your child at the time of circumcision, but apparently it was a custom that they were, they were following in that time. 
And when the people gather for the rite of passage, they simply assume, well, this boy's going to be named after his father. I mean, they waited for a son all these years. Of course, he's going to get Zechariah's name. You don't know if there's another child coming. Of course, it's Zechariah. And Elizabeth, who has believed that the angel spoke to her husband, right? And he wrote it down. This is what the angel said. She believed it. She says right away, no, his name is John. He's going to be named John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. Look at their response. Elizabeth, there's nobody in your family named John. Nobody. I mean, you can go back 20 generations. There's nobody named John. You don't have any cousins named John. Your father's not named John. Your father-in-law's not named John, right? There's no Johns in your, in your family. And, and look at their response, because they think, man, Elizabeth has lost her mind, so let's go to the guy who can't talk, right? Verse 62. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They turn to Zechariah, I love this part, and they start making signs to Zechariah. Now Zechariah can hear them perfectly fine, <laughs> right? And so they're doing all this, they're doing the hand signs, he's like, I can hear you, you idiots, I can hear you, I just can't talk, right? Look at verse 63, and he asks for a writing tablet, and he writes these words, his name is John. Scripture says they all wonder. He writes out his name is John. Notice he doesn't write, maybe his name should be John. What do you guys think about John? Would that work? Is that, is that a good name? You like that? No, no. In this moment, it's not a suggestion, but rather it's a recognition of the fact. It's a recognition of what the angel spoke. He is finally agreeing with God. His name is John. He was named by an angel, guys, that came from the presence of God. We're not going to question this. I tried that. It didn't work out too well, right? And, and I love this, though. Because even though Zechariah failed at faith before, God gives him a second chance at it. He gives him a second chance at faith. And can I just say, he does the same for us today. Maybe we didn't believe him in the past. Maybe we didn't step out in faith in the past. But today is a new day to believe the promises of God and to step out in faith in those promises. But there's something else I want you to see here. I want you to just think about those months of silence, because we read through the passage, it just goes through quick, right? But nine months of silence, God's judgment on Zechariah for not believing his word. But in this moment, all of those months, they now bear fruit in his heart. And at the moment of truth, when it really matters, at the naming of the child, what will Zechariah say? Do you understand? That's the tension of the story. That's what it's building to at this point. And, and he communicates without a shadow of a doubt in his mind, because now Zechariah has actually come to believe God's word to him. The answer is an emphatic, his name is John. And we see something, I think, here of God's kindness in dealing with Zechariah. Because through this trial of silence, this judgment, if you will, Zechariah's faith in God's word has grown, and now he displays his faith in God's promise. His name is John. His name is John, just like God's word to me through the angel. So that season of adversity, get this, that season of adversity that was brought by the Holy Spirit brought believing fruit in Zechariah's life. So when the moment of truth came, he believes and he writes out on the tablet and immediately, Scripture says, the Lord loosens his tongue. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is the blessing and, and praise to God. Remember when he came out of the temple, he was supposed to speak the blessing, right? Now it's nine months later, right? And, and I want you to think about that for a few moments because you may be wondering today, in, in the midst of your own adversity, maybe you're walking through a season and you're like, man, God, what are you doing? 
God, I don't understand what you're doing through this adversity. Hear me. Write this down if you need to. Put this down someplace, right? Understand this. God never wastes adversity in the lives of his children. God never wastes adversity in the lives of his children. But here's the thing. We don't like adversity, do we? (laughs) We much prefer prosperity, don't we? Right? The, The church in America loves prosperity. Bless me, bless me, right? And hear me, there's nothing wrong with asking for the blessing of the Lord. And and I'm not saying that any of God's gifts should ever be despised. You understand that? That's not what I'm saying. But you have to ask with all the blessing and all the prosperity that we've seen as a nation. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world by far. But where has that gotten us as the people of God? Right now we have a generation of Christians. Christians that don't know right from wrong. Those who, who claim to know Jesus, today it's 178 million or 100, somewhere around there, uh, Americans that claim to be Christians. Over 60% of the population doesn't look like it with where our world is going, right? And, and yet only about 6% of U.S. adults, which is about 9% of those who identify as Christians, actually possess a biblical worldview, meaning they believe the Bible to be accurate and reliable. And they give the word of God actual authority over their lives, which is why we have men who stand in pulpits and claim to be pro-choice pastors. I used to be like, man, who would go to a church like that? Apparently, they can draw from about 91% of professed Christian population. Today, you have major denominations that question the authority of Scripture and do not have a biblical worldview in so many areas. I heard a so-called pastor, I'm going to say so-called pastor this past week, talk about how we should be pro-choice as Christians because God was pro-choice. And, and he started to talk about how in the garden, Adam and Eve were given a choice. And I'm like, yes, they did, but one choice was clearly wrong, right? Don't we realize that? That's like saying because God allows sin, he condones sin. That's insanity. You, you want a verse regarding God's heart for the unborn? Look at this, Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness to you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. You and your offspring may live. Check this out. That word offspring in Latin is fortua. It's where we get our word fetus. And so when someone says it's just a fetus, they're really saying it's just my offspring. I don't know who this is for today. I don't know if you're in the room or you're streaming online, but choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. You see, sadly, the church in America, man, we've become a victim of our own prosperity. Because here's the truth, and I'm sure you've seen it in your own life. I've learned very little from prosperity and seasons of prosperity, but I've learned a great deal from adversity. I've learned a great deal from adversity. God so often works by his Holy Spirit through adversity to build us up, to grow us in grace, to help us to actually believe. God will use adversity and by his Holy Spirit grow us in grace. That's what I see God doing in the church through this season. I see it, man. He's refining us. He's challenging us. He's bringing us to the point where we will actually agree with the word of God, where we will actually agree with what he says or we won't. 
And I'm just praying that those months that we spent locked down or isolated and restricted, I pray they bear fruit. And at the moment of truth, when we're called to stand for righteousness, when we're called to agree with the word of God, there will be no shadow of doubt in our minds what we need to do because we as the people of God have actually become to believe the word of God. We've actually come to believe the word of God that we read and we study. It's actually truth for our lives. You see, that's what happened with Zechariah. And so if you're there today and you're in this season of adversity and you're wondering, man, what, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Can I just tell you, if you're God's child, there's no question that God has purposes for your adversity. He's got a purpose for your adversity, for your good, for his glory, in order for you to grow in grace. And when the time comes and the question is asked, Zechariah, what's his name? His name's John. No hesitation. And here's the thing. I've begun to see glimpses of this in the church. Many of you, you're not the same person you were two years ago. You're not the same person you were two years ago. Maybe two years ago you, you wavered. You, I don't know if it's true or not, but now you say, no, I know this is true. I'm standing on the word of God. And here's my encouragement. As the adversity has already grown you, don't let it stop growing you. Don't let it stop growing you. As you walk through it, trust that God is at work in your life. Allow it to refine you and bring you to the place where you actually agree with God's word. As Zechariah makes this declaration, scripture tells us immediately his mouth was opened up. Until he came to that place where he agreed with what God was saying, the angel says, you're not even gonna speak right now. Until you come to that place where you can agree with what I'm saying, and remember, this was a punishment for his, his disobedience, but that punishment, I love this, it doesn't make him bitter towards God. Instead, it makes him want to trust God all the more at every opportunity, and so the first words that come out of his mouth are words of praise and blessing, right? One thing I want you to see as we move to close today, I want you to see, though, where Luke is going with all of this in this gospel, because it, it all ties together. What is the result of this child being born and the result of Elizabeth and Zechariah together being absolutely clear, his name, the name that's gonna be given to him is John, which means, by the way, graced by God. Here's the result, everyone's amazed. Scripture tells us this happens and everybody wonders. What if at 24, John Elizabeth had a child? Okay, that seems normal. But everybody now, this, this has got their attention, and they all begin to wonder. Verse 65 says, fear, that's reverential awe, came on all their neighbors. And then listen again to verse 65. It says, all these things were talked about through all, all the hill country of Judea. It was the news. It was the gossip going on. Did you hear what happened to Zechariah, right? And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. Who does that sound like? Sounds a little bit like Mary, right? She was treasuring these things up in her heart. All who heard what happened to Elizabeth and Zechariah, they treasured them up in their hearts and they began to ask this question. Who's this child gonna be? Who will he be, man? The Lord must have some great plan in mind. It's gonna unfold through the life of this child and so they begin to watch John even from a young age. And this is precisely what God intended to do through this amazing providence that's unfolding in the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth in John. He wants to focus everyone's attention on this child who's going to be born. And what is he going to do? Because he wants to focus their attention on that child because that child is going to focus their attention on another child. 
And, and he really wants the question to be, who's this child, right? He wants that question to be in the minds of everyone. And, and just as Jesus will look at his disciples one day at Caesarea Philippi, he's going to ask these words, who do people say that I am? In, in this moment, God is focusing all the attention of the people in the hill country of Judea on the question of who is this child because that child is going to point to another child who is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Messiah. And the most important question I could, we could ever ask in our lives is this, simply this, who is Jesus? Who is he? He's more than a good teacher. He's, he's more than a prophet. He's more than, than a role model. He is our Lord and he's our Savior. He is the promised Messiah. And I want to say, if you don't know him today, I invite you to come and know him. Today, you can repent. Again, John's message was simple. There's sin in your life. But forgiveness is available. Let me point you to the one who forgives. Jesus forgives. He forgives sin. Jesus is that Savior. Today you can repent. And it simply means this. I'm going to turn from going my own way and I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. Scripture says we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Scripture makes it clear all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, the good gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, through our faith in the work that Christ did on the cross. You can receive forgiveness today. You can receive eternal life and it begins today. So with heads bowed around the room, I want you to take a moment. And if you need to turn from going your own way, turn from from sin in your life and, and, and actually finally surrender to Jesus. Maybe you've heard a lot about him and you admire him, but he's not your Lord and he's not your Savior. If you would say by an upraised hand today, Pastor, pray for me. I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Just raise your hand. I would love to pray for you. Just by an upraised hand, just say, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are that Savior, that you're that Messiah. We thank you, Lord God, it's simply by acknowledging what you've done for us. It's not by our our own good works. Lord, your word says that our righteous works, our good works are filthy rags. We always would fall short, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came. And you came to go to the cross. You came to bear our sin and shame. And so, Lord, we just receive today that forgiveness of sins. We receive eternal life today. Lord, we thank you for John who would point to Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you today for drawing our attention to you. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close? I want to read to you Zechariah's song, and I want you to hear this. Because it says there in the scripture in this moment that Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and it says he prophesied. This is not just a simple song that he thought of. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Listen to these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I want you to see what's taking place here because something's stirring in this moment. Something's stirring. God spoke through Gabriel. He spoke through Elizabeth. He spoke through Mary. Now he speaks through Zechariah. Again, for 400 years, the prophetic voice had been silent, but now God begins to speak and everything that's communicated is connected to the theme of Jesus Christ and his work. But listen to those words again because they're for you today. Zechariah begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. You can read those words. And here, horn of David, what does that mean, horn of salvation? So often they use that term, horn of salvation, because people saw the power of the animal as being in its horns. And so as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah begins to prophesy about the Messiah. Jesus is for us the horn of salvation. Jesus is the one who saves us from our enemies, and the greatest enemy is death. the last enemy to be defeated, but Jesus even defeats death itself. Jesus is the horn of salvation for us. He is the one who saves us from our enemies. When people looked at the miraculous work that was done in Elizabeth's life, here's the thing, they knew the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And I just pray this Advent season, I want you to see the same thing in your own life. Jesus is coming is, is not a matter of good luck or, or good chance. From the moment that sin entered the world, the prophecy was that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so as Jesus is coming, this is the Lord's doing. The root of our joy, not only in this season, but in every season, ought to be in the recognition that Jesus is God's provision for us. He's done this thing. He came. He sought us out. He is that horn of salvation. God has done this thing, and he's in our midst. That's why we call him Emmanuel. God with us. And so with heads bowed around the room, just take a moment. Eyes closed so you're not distracted by what's going on around you. I want you to begin to thank God for his mercy to you. Do you recognize today that the Lord has shown great mercy to you? So many people think only of the judgment of God, but he's shown great mercy to you. That's what we celebrate this Advent season. So begin to just lift your voice. Come on. Begin to thank him for that mercy. Oh, it's not what you deserve. It's not what you deserve. Speaking to lift your voice and thank him. Thank him for that great mercy that he's shown to you in the person of Jesus Christ. He came and he sought you out. He found you when you were lost. 